0: Welcome to Exploring Creativity. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a community for creative people all over the world. On this podcast, we explore a variety of topics with a multifaceted group of creative people. We explore these topics in hopes of broadening your perspective and giving you the tools you need to do your very best work. Today, I'm speaking with Christian Wheeler. Christian is a musician, writer, and collaborator on this project. Together we explored overcommitting and saying no, why networking isn't as sleazy as it seems, process orientation versus outcome orientation, and so much more. It was a great conversation with a great friend, and I'm super excited for you to hear it.
1: Hey, how's it going? What's up, dude? Finally doing it. Finally doing it. Well, I'm super excited to
0: have you on. I mean, we've been talking not since February, but like six months about. And I remember, you know, a conversation early on where we were talking about, I was like, this is super meta because our collaboration should reflect an ideal collaboration, right? Like this is a project about creativity and about creative collaboration and creative work, and we should set the best example for ourselves and for other people, uh, while doing this. I'm curious for you, like, what
1: have you taken away from this experience so far? Well, I've, I've taken away firstly, that as varied and different as everyone's approaches to creativity are, there is like a common root that it all kind of revolves around, which has been really great. So to not only find kind of the peculiarities of everyone's own kind of practice, but to find sort of general themes that recur. And, you know, as we've talked about privately, like spectrums, we all navigate, and we can get into that later. But as far as our collaboration, being excited about how deeply you can get with somebody that you haven't put in years getting to know and how quickly you can find a common language and common goals and have like a really fruitful collaboration on the par with maybe some people who I've either, you know, went to college with or grew up with.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this shared language and shared goals from the start was such a stellar into our collaboration and then i think this ability of like giving feedback and showing up for each other was another aspect where like you know i think there was early on you weren't able to like make a few calls or something and you had stuff going on and it was like oh looks like something's wrong like let let's talk about it let's address it before mm-hmm. it like simmers or sits or we're confused about it or whatever and i feel like just being able to have fast feedback with each other has been also another accelerant to the collaboration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially being, you know, doing a lot of like studio musician work, um, getting a lot of feedback is something that I'm very used to. But it's also there's so many different kinds of feedback and some people are better at empathetic feedback than others. And so it was, it's interesting to learn everyone's style. It's almost like Um, I mean, this is just a riff off the top of my head, but it's almost like there are, in the same way that people talk about love languages, there's like Mm -hmm. different like feedback styles or like archetypes. And I, I felt like very quickly in our collaboration, we got on the same page about like, cool, we're just gonna be super open, put everything on the table. I don't think either of us get hard feelings really quick when you know confronted with feedback because I think we've both been put through the ringer in freelance lives so we're not new to it or you know I've noticed working with a lot of musicians who might be amazing musicians but if their outlet has been like one band for a long time that sort of feedback mechanism is very personal because their working relationship is with whatever they're like four friends the the personal gets intertwined with all the other things and since they're not going from project to project there's less of an abstract sort of feedback mechanism that develops so it tends to be like real personally tinged or chord voicing change might have all these other implications where it's like oh yeah you know i think we should put the third on top it's like no we shouldn't like screw you you didn't do the dishes either you know, and that's beautiful in its own way, those kind of groups and what they mean. But I feel like we've been in so many different professional situations that we were very able to quickly not only align, but kind of lay out verbally. Like, oh, this is how we're going to approach feedback, you know, conflict. Mm-hmm. And then after that initial thing, it was just there was like a mutual understanding and we just kind of worked from that. And I've I've seen friendships just absolutely destroyed both quickly and slowly over time by lack of expectations and like the crossover of professional and personal relationships Mm. and when scope creep kind of enters into the equation where it's like yeah we're trading this service for this other service but then all of a sudden you're on mix revision 23 that sounds just like mix revision 17 and then the thing that they did for you with like a five minute thing and so it, it feels lopsided now now all of a sudden there's resentment have you kind of navigated in relationships like that yourself where there was trading involved and scope creep involved it seems like something you're familiar with oh yeah and i i've seen it i've been part of it i have been Guilty of handling those things poorly in the days before I had read any Brene Brown and established saying no, creating boundaries, because, okay, sure, like I'll do this thing, right? And then there's scope creep. And instead of confronting it right there and saying, okay, yeah, we're friends, I said I'd take on this project. It's a little much for me with everything going on. I'm going to need this extra time for it or. If you want it done in this time frame, we should bring someone else in as like a finisher to help, because I'm not going to be able to get it across the line. And instead either try to like force it and do sub quality work to get it across the line in time or get it done on time and sort of harbor resentment that they were reminding me to do the thing that they asked me to do. And I had agreed to do, which is incredibly unfair. Mm-hmm. And I'm using this example just because I'm the one at fault. So it's easy for me to talk about instead of kind of being like, well, I did this one project one time, and I'm still really mad about it. And, you know, all of that is, uh, is water under the bridge. So I'll, I'll take the hit for my example, instead of throwing someone else under the bus in case they're watching or will watch in the future.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's a dual sided collaboration. And I think there's two sides of that fence to be the person that has to ask the person who's not con- who's not fulfilling obligations is rough as well. You know, you might ask the first, son, let's say you're that person. It's difficult to say, hey, Christian, like, you know, we agreed to this thing. Mm-hmm. How do I approach this subject? He seems like he's having a rough week or whatever. There's that difficulty. And then on the other side of it, it's like you don't have the opportunity to be the best version of yourself, the self that you wanted to be in that situation that you could be if you had time or resources or whatever. It's rough, but that's why it's like setting the expectations. I mean, having run this business and send out so many contracts, it's like, it's when I heard from my stepbrother is a attorney. And so when he had written up and drafted my first few contracts and I was talking to him about it, it's like, it's there to protect both of you. And I remember thinking about that. Like I thought of contracts as this is meant to protect me. So like, I'm going to put a bunch of shit in here. That's going to like screw the other person over. And like, as long as I'm safe, like, that's why this contract exists. And it's like, just hearing that from him is like, oh, it's protecting both of you. Because I'm used to filling out like apartment contracts or it's like, I'm fucked. Like everything I'm signing right now, like I can't do anything and they could just kick me out tomorrow, basically. So thinking about contracts in that way and, you know, in the creative space, you know, people aren't really rushing to like be formal in that way. But man, I feel like it's helped a bunch. So Thanks for, for kind of agreeing to our terms and, and developing terms together. Cause I think while it's not written, it's definitely internalized.
1: Yeah. And I will definitely say that I, that's one of the big things that I used my time to myself in 2020 to develop quite like consciously, I mentioned it before, but if anyone hasn't read Brene Brown, she's just Mm -hmm. amazing at really spelling out Ideas about vulnerability and and boundaries and things that were really transformative in my relationships. And I think as a freelancer, we're so hardwired to not say no to anything because, well, you know, all your work could go away tomorrow. So you got to say yes in case, you know, you have a lean week two weeks after this or, you know, whatever that kind of scarcity mindset is. But I think really. Setting up boundaries and expectations and treating yourself well so that you can show up for the work, it pays more dividends later um, because the quality of the work goes up and you can put your full self in it. So now I know when I am say yes to a project, they're not getting a part of me or whatever part of me is left from whatever else I'm doing. Like when I'm there, like I'm all the way in it and they're going to get as much of me as I'm capable of giving within the boundaries and parentheses we set up so that I can give it my all and then not feel like anything is being taken from me that I need in reserve for wellness or my personal life for health because I would put that on the line to get you know finish a project at times which was not going to do anymore I don't regret it because I think in some ways some of that hustle culture stuff got me where I am now But I'm in a position where I can say no. And so I'm very grateful for that one. And two, I'm taking that extremely seriously, so that my reputation isn't like busy guy, I want my reputation to be intense the project, I feel like I'm the only thing he's working on, even though he has a bunch of other stuff going on guy. And that's a daily struggle. Mm -hmm. And I do that better some days than others, some weeks better than others. But that's kind of the goal I'm striving towards um, that is, again, kind of more community focused and more about uplifting the creative visions of like collaborators in that instead of just kind of showing up and being like, this is what I do. I did it. Like my presence mm-hmm. is the present. And now I got to go because like I'm so busy, like you're lucky to have me like peace." because mm-hmm. there there is a lot of that with in demand musicians too. And I always felt too guilty to be that kind of person. So I would just, you know, if I wasn't giving my all to something, I would be racked with guilt, when really all I needed to do was set boundaries and say no. So now I'm can both preserve my energy, and then show up more for the things I say yes to. Yeah, I mean, the intentional elevating the project
0: guy is a great persona to, uh, to aspire to be. And I think thinking about our collaboration so far, I look forward to our recap phone calls after whenever we have them. I mean, I feel a void when we don't have them. That's how much I value the intention that you bring and and what you bring to the project in the perspective and the way of, of reframing and recontextualizing a lot of what happened on any interview or what ideas were presented. And so I think to your point, like being able to say I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that so that I can be 110% this and 110% that he is I was talking to my buddy, Eduardo today about this. It's like, there's a fear of wait, what if I say no, you know, what if I don't do this project or I leave this project? Uh What happens? Is there going to be another project or whatever? And I think that's definitely a fear that people have in general, but it seems like what you're saying is when you do it, and when you set the boundaries, and you learn, like, it's hard enough just to say no, let alone getting to the point where it's like, now, what can you do with that time? Do you have any case studies of saying no to something and something else really great appearing? Because I think that's a common fear. And I'm wondering where that lands with you.
1: Yeah, actually, so I got offered at a time, like a few months ago, where I was somewhat strapped for cash. I got offered this really huge two-run, six-week-a-piece tour. And I kind of looked at my schedule, and I think I would have been out right now. And I I looked at everything I had on there, and I felt really committed to the things that I was doing in that time. With uh, like people I'd been collaborating with for longer, who I knew would be... I'd collaborate more in the future. It felt like this great opportunity for really you know decent money and and good music and travel accommodations kind of a living the dream kind of moment it felt like that was going to be a one-off thing with those people or you know both of these runs and then that would be it whereas I wanted to like nurture these you know relationships and and keep all the important great things I had on my schedule so I just was like really odd and grateful for that opportunity and then I said no and then I ended up getting a bunch of gigs with uh, like these new people who are, I now consider great friends and collaborators. And then for that second run, which would be in January, I ended up booking. A musical that would last even longer during the year mm. be even better for me both personally you know career-wise uh financially like musically like very fulfilling like i'm very excited about this thing and if i was gone from january to march i would have had to say no to something that is going to end up being you know once i sign the papers like january to september closer to home with people i love you know, I'm really excited to work with and always wanted to work with more, it's going to give me the opportunity to also through like sub things like give back to some players who've given me like really great opportunities. So if I wasn't able to do that, that would have actually really pulled on me and been a bummer. So what I thought was my biggest opportunity to date that I had to kind of summarily turn down, I ended up getting this even better opportunity, which is going to be more fulfilling and and better. So yeah, I mean, that that's happened to me all the time. I, I tend not to think about what if and, and sort of trust the process. Because every time I think I know, especially in music, where I think my career is going, and it takes a turn that I don't like, there's usually something different around the corner that brings me somewhere I, I wouldn't have expected. Well, I mean, I had a bunch of great stuff booked. For twenty twenty. I was supposed to go on tour in China in March of <laughs> 2020. It was big, like like really big venues, like that we were apparently gonna sell because of some weird licensing thing, and we were gonna just have this great international, pretty successful, fun tour with an artist I play with. That all got canceled, and then yeah, many months later, like I'm sitting here talking to you, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. So this is also an example of one of those things.
0: Yeah. Wow. So many examples. And I I love that. I wanted to zoom into the moments where you have to say no and have to turn that down. And like you said, you know, you're pretty good at that. Were you always good at that? Or was that something that came in time?
1: (laughs) No, I said yes to everything for years and years. And I, I knew that I would say yes until I was able to say no. And that was always the plan, but it, it, it is really difficult because if someone asks me to do something, I'm not only um, excited about the opportunity, I'm flattered, grateful to be employed. I want to do all these things, kind of over promise and, and I, I would get really excited. And to say no felt like I was, I don't know, like it would like hurt them in some way, even though it wasn't personal, that's probably not the best way to describe it. But I would feel a sense of guilt for not being able to do something. And so to avoid the discomfort of saying no right away, I would say yes, until it became untenable, which ends up being way worse and more uncomfortable. We have to say no in the middle of something than at the beginning of something. So it's almost like selfishly to avoid the additional pain and discomfort of saying no later. I've taught myself to say no now, which actually ends up being much better for the health of my personal and professional relationships. And at the end of the day, the music business or any like freelance work is just 90% relationship management once you have basic skills under your fingers. So yeah, yeah. I I was not always good at it. I was the best at it I've ever been. And that does not mean I don't have an incredible uh, uh, amount of room to grow. Because while it might sound like I have everything figured out, I absolutely do not. And I think one of my skills is making it sound like I have everything figured out by making my provisional understanding of something that I've come to recently, like my new epiphany, and make it seem like, oh, well, this is like Eureka. I have found the, the nectar of the gods, the meaning of life. And then I, you know, I I don't like proselytize. I don't like preach it as like this is the truth. But it's like, yeah, this is the truth for me. But it, you know, it, then something else ends up replacing it, and it's a always a developing understanding. So I'm better than I was, and uh, hopefully tomorrow I'll be better at it than I am today. And that's really all I can ask for. Yeah, it's too great
0: threads there. One thread to pull on is, you know, that feeling of guilt when saying no, like feeling like it's like, if you really think about it, it's like so cocky to think like, oh, uh, if I say no to Christian, like he's going to be fucking devastated. Like, yeah. <laughs> like if I can't work with him, he is going to be so upset. Like it's going to just destroy it. And it's like, wait, what? Like he's probably yeah, gonna be like, yeah. okay, cool. Like uh, I was already asking someone else, you know, whatever. But yeah, like that happens all the time where it's like, you definitely feel that, you know, someone's asking you for something that means a lot. And rather than doing something, which I've been trying to do recently, and again, uh, the other thread of this, which is should preface any watching of any of these videos, which is we're arriving at new truths all the time and then refactoring those truths later when we realize they don't make sense in all contexts or whatever. So I was saying this to Eduardo on the phone today. I was like, here's how I would pack for a trip to LA for three weeks, but I pack minimally. So like only take this advice mm-hmm. if you plan on living like in this specific way. Prior to that, I used to not do that kind of thing. And so you hear truths thrown around as if they're the objective only truth that can exist. Or so I like that you clarified that. Yeah, so, but anyway, like this, the saying no part, definitely been there and having to say no to people and feeling the guilt
1: is is real. Do you have any, any response to that? Or? Oh, uh, I, well, I think that's really true because again, working in music directors or producers, there are many who the, you know, because their job is to have a point of view in, in many ways, and this is how I, I see this thing being the, uh, that can flip into a sort of hubris where it's like, if you're going to play rock, if you're going to play power chords only play a les paul because if you don't play a les paul that is wrong and it's kind of like the fuck out of here man like yeah. you can like i'll I'll play your hello kitty guitar and make it yeah good like and you know so, so to a certain extent it's it's you know it's nice to have that clear cut view but really all truths are uh conditional in some way i say as i i look over at my bookshelf and see the uh, Foucault reader. But I I think all truths are moving you along the path because I know I I had really firmly held beliefs, you know, especially when I'm like 19. I didn't know what I didn't know then because I thought I knew everything, of course, like every other 19 year old man in college, right? So that version of me would think that this version of me, which I think is has a more nuanced view of life. Has learned some things through hard-won experience and a lot of reading and a lot of mistakes. He would think that I was completely full of shit. So, like, not only do I like disagree with other people on, you know, what I consider to be truths, I wouldn't even agree with previous incarnations of myself. So, how can I, you know, sit here and talk about some sort of objective truth? I mean, not just like metaphysically and like some high-minded way, but like with art. I would have told you uh, two years ago that, oh yeah, low-tuned, real gushy snare drums, like that's the thing. And it was like the trend and it was super cool. And now I've heard that for, you know, however many years. And I'm like, you know what we should do? Let's take all that muffling off and crank that thing and just make it scream like a, you know, 90s Stone Temple Pilots record or something. Like it's all constantly evolving, understanding which I've learned because it's been modeled by the artists and creatives that I respect the most, whether it's a writer who kind of revises their beliefs as their life changes, someone like Sartre, who was, you know, had a really clear view of what he believed and then kind of went afield and then retracted some things and, or someone like Kanye or the Beatles, or especially Miles Davis or Coltrane, where their artistic journey from like a God's eye view reflects changing values over time as like manifested in the work, like you can see how their concept of what is right or what is good or what is like desirable or what the meaning of music or life is. You can see that reflected in those people's work because it changes as they change as as people and artists. So I'm sort of letting go of wanting to be right or having it all figured out because I know, or or especially of being arrogant about thinking I know what the right answer is, because I know that I'm probably wrong. And I will find out why sometime in the next 20 years, if not the next 20 minutes, you know, two quotes right there that I loved I'm probably
0: wrong, and I will find in the next 20 minutes. And also I wouldn't agree with previous incarnations of myself. I just wrote a song the other day that pretty much has that same lyric in it. It was like, you know, why would I trust myself in the past with like decisions I've made or whatever, like, you know, you're always evolving and if you're open enough to being proven wrong in the future. Yeah. Like if you're not, you're in for a rude awakening and if you are, also a very disruptive awakening potentially because there's an extreme of this where you're like, Hey, I don't really know anything. It's always changing. And mm-hmm. then there's, it's hard to have any perspective. So how are you, how are you, you personally balancing having a point of view, you know, while like being open enough, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm very into the idea of controlling my output by kind of manipulating my inputs. Cause I know that it's kind of like you are what you eat, like aesthetically and intellectually and and spiritually. So I'm always reading different things to try to grow and evolve. And then, uh, you know, listening to different music, going through different phases, making big playlists of things that want to influence me at that time, letting that seep in on like a subconscious level and letting it flow out. To answer your question more directly, using, and I'm trying to get better at this, but using the art, process as and now more and more through like writing, documenting all of those provisional answers or provisional values or provisional truths, so that I can look back at my life through art and writing and see all of the ways I thought it ha- I had it figured out over time. So I'll be able to see through these like written markers and documents You know, I can see my progress of trying to figure things out and kind of instead of trying to make my, you know, Sergeant Pepper, realizing that Sergeant Pepper for them was a moment in time and just trying to document my moments in time through the things I create and then using my life as a perpetual process of growing and learning and trying to understand things the best way I can whether it is through reading or listening you know whether it's digging you know really into like Duke Ellington and trying to figure that out even more than I did in the past or just being knocked out by new stuff like why am I so emotionally impacted by Olivia Rodrigo like that came out of nowhere and you know so it's being open to things that are outside of my sphere and then trying to go deeper into things I already understand, but also just trusting my intuition. It's kind of like to guide me where I go with those things. I'm in a transition right now in my reading where I was real heavy into kind of businessy self help stuff, because I really badly needed it because I was not running my business like a business. Now I'm like, okay, I'm starting to just read the same thing over and over again. And I'm starting to put these things into practice. So now I'm expanding kind of back into more hard philosophy instead of like soft philosophy, like, you know, less less stoicism, more mid-century, like French structuralism and whatever. So it's like I'm always kind of navigating my influences so I can change what my outputs are and bring something new to the table and constantly growing in all these different directions, but then also not just doing that and and kind of howling at the moon like actually making art for myself and other people so i can listen back to something um and go like wow 2017 i must have been listening to like a lot of Liz paul and mary ford because i just ripped that off subconsciously wholesale <laughs> and just letting that be what it is it wasn't the answer but my intuition made me make that move looking back i can say, oh. Well, that that makes sense in context. And and I think that's a beautiful way to look back at a life too. Absolutely. Uh, Again, this is so funny. I had a really nice
0: conversation with Eduardo today. Shout out to Eduardo. And we were talking about finding the self and what is the self and, you know, and you've read a lot of philosophy. So I'm just sure you have lots to say about this. But this idea of like, the self comes through acting and doing in the world. And I was just thinking about that as you were going and explaining this is the way you're figuring it out is by doing and being challenged and and having to respond and getting as much good inputs as you can, so that hopefully the output is closer to the way you would like to behave and the way you've seen demonstrated or explained.
1: Yeah, but all the good inputs in the world, too, there's a sense in which just by taking it in, it's subconsciously becoming part of you. But at the same time, you have to put those ideas into motion. Otherwise, they're just ideas. uh, And that can lead to a certain type of stagnation where um, I've had this conversation many times. I have very similar conversations to the ones we have with my dad. And we both read a lot of stuff about Buddhism and and mindfulness and, you know, Vedic philosophy. And I, I remember talking to him one day and I was like, this is a great conversation But I think we would get to the answer quicker if you just meditated twice a day instead of once a day. And I wasn't trying to be like glib or rude or say like, oh, I have it figured out or whatever. But all of these things that I was reading about didn't click until I actually started putting it into practice. And that practice became a deep part of my being. And then I stopped having to read about it as much because I was experiencing it firsthand, I I took the TM course, which I'm not trying to sell to anybody. But it was really one of many ways to meditate. And I found this one impactful. And the the guy who taught it to me while I was doing my like little intake form, and he was talking to me, he's like, Oh, you studied philosophy in college. That's cool. I used to read a lot of philosophy. And then I started this practice of meditation. And now I build bird houses, And that was so profound to me because it's like, Oh, you experientially found what you believe to be the truth in like this cosmic way. So like, yeah, why, why would you read a sort of transcription of the thing that you experience? And you know, right. it was basically like, oh, look at, you know, that's cute that you're like reading this description of Beethoven's fifth symphony, but like, unless you're in the room with the New York Phil, like you don't, you know, that, that is the experience the The reading, the the musicological, you know, analysis is not the experience. So there there's a sense in which all the all the good inputs in the world need to be put into motion to actually become the desired outputs. So that is a caveat to kind of the framework I presented because it doesn't just mystically appear as great art. well,
0: I love this point here because, you know, we've been working on this book and gathering the research for it, discussing what we're learning. And so much of it is the philosophy right now. I took a note, you know, how does practice work itself into our book? On my other screen right here, I'm working on a 40-week course on design and trying to structure that. And philosophically, I'm like, well, I think practice is so essential to understand design. I should only be talking about design so much. At some points, you have to try to design something and realize where you're at and then be able to Mm -hmm. level up because you know your level and know like what's next or what you'd like to learn. So I think there is a balance. I don't know exactly what it is. But I think you know, I remember talking with Greg Matthews, who aka yellow shoots on one of these interviews and him saying the seasonality of life. And, you know, it might not be exactly the same, I'm gonna be every three months or eight months, whatever, but there is this ebb and flow of like, sometimes the best thing you could do is just soak up all these different influences, uh, because maybe that's what you need. Maybe it's comforting. Maybe it's helping you think that you're progressing and maybe you are in some way, even if you're not retaining, you know, even 5% of it. And then you go into the world and you experience again. It's definitely something to think about, you know, how the creative sees that journey and what attributes they assign to those moments of like the of the ebb and flow, you know, the yin yang being an example of that where black isn't bad and negative isn't bad like this, the color or the word negative isn't negative term, you know what I mean? And white positive, that side of it isn't good. Both of these things are necessary components the whole thing existing is the only good thing, you know, the only positive thing, everything else is just a requirement. But I think, but part of the seasonality, one part of it is how do you view that seasonality? What tone do you assign to it? Wondering there, like, where language and ideas, how they how that works for you, how that helps you be a better, quote, unquote, creative, you know, you read a lot, probably more than most people I know, but wondering how, like, this knowledge and reading?
1: Uh, how does it help you? Well, I, I think it really forms how I view the world. I think most of my experience of the world is like mediated through language. And I think when I was younger, it was a, a portal into other worlds, which people talk about a lot. But I was never primarily a fiction reader either. So I, that wasn't exactly it. But I think there was a sense in which I wanted to use words and knowledge to help give me categories so I had everything figured out. This very like structuralist understanding of, okay, cool. Like now let's look at the continuum of music history. We have the 60s. Okay, what are these currents? And I would be able to have like a visual map in words, but associations of, okay, these are the instruments they were playing. These are the sounds they were using. These are the types of chords they were using. And it would help me bracket off a sort of socio-historical, like, understanding of the world. And then I think as I've gotten older, it's less about breaking things and putting them into neat boxes. As I'm learning, those boxes are, in many ways, just arbitrarily sort of created and restrictive of, like, a greater understanding of things. It's it's all about connecting ideas to each other through language and then finding aspects of language that help uh, construct and create meaning in my life that I can then apply in the sense that like, I'm very influenced by kind of early existentialism, like Sartre, I have mentioned him a couple times, and sort of the idea that the meaning of our life is provisional and created by us. And, and that's like our radical responsibility, like that freedom isn't necessarily like a gift. In in a lot of ways, it's mm-hmm. like terrifying we have to construct our own meaning, but I I think I've used language to do that, which means I'm constantly evolving in my understanding of things. And I, you know, firsthand in a lot of, you know, I won't go into this area of things, but I think my understanding of the world, um, sort of politically over time, it, it very much attests to the power of language and category and the way that that has been a force for both good and bad thinking of that in the Foucault sense and kind of the Nietzschean sense. So like language is quite literally power in a lot of ways. And so I take it very seriously. So I'm always trying to reassess the categories in my brain and bringing it to like a lighter thing, like with genre, it like musically, okay, like I have all these words that I might associate with how like jazz feels right jazz the word as a category right is even being challenged now as reductive of this greater tradition that is beyond what we see that to be so much of our I mean this is a bit of a a tangent but so much of our understanding of genre is mediated by commercial categories that were created by you know record companies to sell on the basis of race region socioeconomic status just or or just ways that they felt like they could package it right so the difference between folk blues and what we know as like country was literally just like race for a little bit and you know they would oh we can sell this to these people whatever and then now you're learning music right and you go on youtube and you know 12 country licks And there's this like really clearly defined thing like that means a lot to us. So I think whereas to actually complete my point, when I was younger, I wanted to learn all those categories. I wanted to read everything, absorb all this knowledge. So I had the words to describe the universe as it is and music and art and just really have a command over that. Now I'm in this place where I'm seeing the limits of language and I'm trying to use language to help like liberate out-of-date categories like from themselves and uh maybe challenge my own understanding that was limited by that language and have a more expansive inclusive like holistic understanding of the universe that the very way i learned about all of these things actually restricted me to certain modes of thinking that aren't serving me anymore both creatively or otherwise because when it comes down to it As much as language is important to me and and everything you asked and everything I just kind of word saladed together, music is in its best moments when I'm on stage and it feels great, I'm completely unfettered by language. It is as close to an experience of transcending or like samadhi or sort of this blissful, almost separation of self as I can get outside of meditation. So I feel like in a lot of ways, my purest artistic self isn't mediated by language, but I've used language to understand things enough to where I could get to that point where I can like transcend it. So it's almost like I'm, I'm constantly like pushing up against it, which is really exciting. And I'm animated and excited by this idea that I really am very much stopping myself from talking about like Derrida and, and, and like Chomsky universal language and stuff like that, because that tangent wouldn't be necessarily productive for us in our like creative aesthetic discussion. But I think to get to that place of pure creation, you have to push past the the language and the categories that we've used to define it. But at the same time, to learn it, you actually have to learn, you have to acquire the grammar of whatever medium you're you're doing both through imitation of masters and also by like reading books about how they did it. And so both English or whatever your first language is and the language of the medium you're using are going to be kind of intertwined in how you learn anything. I've never put it like that before, but really I think at the end of the day, creativity is kind of can be described in terms of like linguistics on that kind of higher level. So like language is everything and like nothing at the exact same time Mm -mm. for how I think of things. Well, I couldn't have looked for
0: that if I tried. I'm glad it emerged. Um, I'll say that. (laughs) Um, That was really well stated and I resonate with it deeply. I think, you know, teaching, having this role of teaching has changed the way I think about my experience as a designer since I've been designing? Like, how did I start? Why did I start? What was it like? How did I get to the place that I felt like I was anything at any point? And how did I evolve past there? And why, And what decisions? And digging into that, you realize all of these things that you're saying, which is, there was a knowledge that I was pulling from a knowledge base, which really was just segmenting ideas into categories that were uh, assigned some label. And I was like, okay, that's the world. And I'm very much like you, and I, that's where we, we resonate, resonated with each other early on, which is I wanted to make sense of the world completely. And I thought that there was an objective truth to all the things. And there still might be that the jury's out, but I wanted to find that for design. I started by just learning it and having fun with it. And then very quickly was like, how can I be great? What does that mean? There has to be like one path towards that greatness, I'm going to assume it's just studying all the things that ever came before, and knowing all the words and and whatever. And then getting to a point where it was like, okay, I know all of that. But I think there's like another side of this whole thing. And it actually was the dismantling of the concepts, dismantling of the labels. It's sort of that thing is like you have to know how to make it to know how to like, you know, know how it's made to like actually make the thing. You need to know the components before you can sort of destroy it and break it apart and form your own meanings. But so there's that side of things, which I think you captured beautifully. And it had me thinking about inspiration because inspiration is just a thing that has a label already applied to it. Likely some metadata that you're decoding uh, when you're viewing that thing. Uh, which that metadata, the label of it, like a genre and artist. If I say here's a hip-hop track by Kanye or here's a gospel track by Kanye, now you've already, you have two different labels. You have his name, you have the genre, which you're now assigning meaning to, and then all of your experience with Kanye and your thoughts on that. And so all of that's going into sort of either help or add to or subtract from your inspiration. And so thinking about inspiration, as a means of like sort of just this information decoding and how labels affect inspiration and how your decoding of specific labels bias you when looking at inspiration is something uh, I hadn't really thought about, even though I just taught a class on information architecture, didn't think about how information and label or inspiration and labels affect each other, but it definitely does. Yeah, man, that was great. And I was also taking notes for my own class. I wrote, because I'm trying to model the class, here's another label, similar to the Bauhaus School of Design. What I liked about the Bauhaus School of Design, though, is that I don't want it to be the Bauhaus School of Design as it was. I want it to be taking principles of that. And so the only way to do that is to know how it was, really how it was, as, as real as I can get to, and then decode that and apply it. Yeah, part of that is that master apprentice relationship, that imitation, discussion, um, practice, that being that 80 or 90% of the of the work. And I just took a note here just about the imitation part of it, because that's such a huge part of the work. So you're helping me I'm learning as I always (laughs) do speaking to you. Do you want to add anything about the inspiration piece?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think waiting for inspiration is lazy. I just want to throw that out there. But I will say that inspiration is a fickle mistress, but we can do so many things to prime ourselves for allowing it to come in, if that makes sense. So while you can't necessarily wait for lightning to strike, you can move somewhere where it rains a lot, you know? So if I want to be really inspired to write or something like that, I could sit around and wait for it to happen. And I can't guarantee it's going to happen. But if I make sure that first thing in the morning, I get up and I take a long walk and I'm reading a lot and I have new inputs and I'm challenging my assumptions and I'm talking to interesting people and trying to get out of my comfort zone, I'm at least I'm at least prepping the soil for something to potentially spring up on its own. And so I think I fall somewhere between the okay, like I am like, you know, this kind of French 19th century idea of like, what an artist is, where you just sit around and you lounge and you wait, and then you're stricken with this, like need to have this thing pour out of you like that can happen. And that's really beautiful. And it worked really, really well for Byron. And I also appreciate like the pure craftsman and I come at it like that where it's like, you go to work every day. And it's like this real blue collar approach to craft which doesn't really allow for inspiration. It's just like, yep, you do it until it's good. And sometimes it will be and sometimes it won't be. And if you do it enough, then eventually it'll be good. Well, I think that both of those are extreme. And the truth is like somewhere in the middle, where if like, if you work enough, and you keep yourself open by all those things we talked about going to a museum or just whatever fills you up spiritually. I mean, it could be like brunch cocktails with your college friends, it could be anything, as long as you're doing those two things, then you're like preparation and the fact that you're creating that opportunity will then probably create more times that you get struck by the lightning bolt. I don't have anything too profound beyond that. I just I wanted to, to put that out there because I've heard you know, the hustle culture thing, I think it doesn't allow for the magic and people who just sit around waiting for their Hogwarts letter are going to be disappointed too, because you got to put in the work. So it's I've found it to be somewhere in the middle. And I'm always trying to navigate that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was so I run this monthly designer meetup called art club, there was a new member that joined on Monday, and he's an excellent illustrator, like has this sort of Western version of anime, like if you could Westernize it and like all of the influences of like American cartoon, Flintstones, Jetsons culture meets anime, it's, it's really awesome hybrid. And it's such a distinct style. Like I recognize it immediately. I've known him since college. Every time I've seen his work, I know it's him. He's great. And he's like struggling to get work. And it's like, I was like, well, what opportunities, you know? preparedness, opportunity. I was like, if that is the equation for luck, arguably, or at least getting struck by lightning more times, how many, like, how are you going about seeking opportunity? And it was like, oh, well, I haven't really done anything. I was like, other than like, just sitting there and drawing, like you could illustrate for the rest of your life and literally talk to no one and you'll be the best illustrator. No one knows. Like it's just how it works. But yeah, I think that's a really, really big point. It seems as though this like, What I was recognizing is that his response to not having the opportunity was to double down even harder on the preparedness. It was like, oh, I'm not getting this because I'm not prepared enough. (laughs) It was like, or it's either that language or it's simply, that's what I know. I don't know this like opportunity thing, that's business people, that's the devil. (laughs) He's like, I'm I'm just gonna double down on like, playing guitar and I'm going to be insanely good like the best guitarist and like someone will find me because of that they'll walk across my apartment and hear
1: the solo yeah
0: need to come in
1: <laughs> yeah the the singing into the hairbrush and you know yeah. somebody you know, Clive Davis comes in and yeah exactly you know I am gonna make you a stock kid. like yeah yeah it has happened
0: it will happen yeah uh, it's like but you yeah. add up the number of times that happened versus someone just like hitting up a bunch of people and getting work from that. <laughs> like, right, right, right. I think the latter has been more successful, but it's it it is a phenomenon how that happens, where it's like, oh no, I'm just gonna keep designing. Like I'm gonna make this business successful by just continuing to design. And yeah. There's times where that is true, but it's usually after you have the opportunity. It's not before. Oh yeah. You know, and I was telling him like, look, dude, I got like my first big gig, like when I had like technically for status, half a portfolio piece, it was still in the works. And this was a huge project. And it was like, Yeah, I've done other gigantic projects before, but not with status. And it was like, if I went saying, well, I can't get it, I just need to keep grinding, like, I'm just gonna sit here on my computer all day. I'm like, nah, I did that for like a decade. Plus, yeah, I don't
1: want to, I don't want to sit here and keep doing. it. Like, I need something else. Yeah, you're never you're never ready. And most of the time, when The people you see who are super successful, who are you know maybe further along than creatively or artistically than you might be as an artist. And everyone assumes that they got the job when they were that good. It's like most people jump in, like they're ready, but they're just ready. Or maybe they're not ready and they get thrown in and over the course of doing it, they become great. So if you never throw yourself into the gauntlet, you'll actually never be ready. It's like bands that just rehearse and never play gigs. Well, we're not good enough. We're not good enough. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because rehearsal and gigs are completely different things. Yep. And you can rehearse for three years and never sound like a band that rehearsed one time and went on the road for a week. At a certain point, it's about like putting yourself out there even when it's uncomfortable. I'm saying this from experience. I was always the Oh, I'm not good enough yet or I will be I just need to hone my skills I just need to practice oh I need to just you know once I really figure out my compression ratios then I can start like charging more for mixes and it's like no yeah. get better clients rise to the occasion and, and, and do the thing because being great is like a prerequisite and but at the same time you will get better by doing better quality work and so I've learned especially in the last year or so that there's never a good time to start and throw your, your hat in the ring. So I just started doing it. And then I realized when I was a little bit out of my depth, it forced me to rise the occasion and then I got better quicker and there wasn't a time when I felt a little out of my depth where I didn't pull it together and right. deliver on the level that I needed to, to keep the work. And like worst case scenario is you get fired. You know why you got fired and then you do better next time. And that is also an accelerant. It's not like a jadedness or a not caring that this perspective is coming from. It's just kind of a long view thing. Like, it's just art or music or whatever, like the It's what doesn't kill you is going to make you stronger. And like, pretty much nothing is going to kill you. You just got to like, do it and like, put yourself out there. And it's not, it's also not sleazy to put yourself out there either, as long as you're being like genuine, I think people are really afraid of the idea of like networking, but networking is literally just making friends, which is hard making friends is <laughs> fucking hard as an adult. Yeah. So like, like, I get it. I'm like a very naturally shy person. So the fact that I like reached out to you and everything was like a, a like kind of a big step, because it usually takes me a while to like warm up to people. Um, And I'm just trying to be more outward and, and open in that kind of way. So that was a big learning experience where it's like, Oh, well, yeah, I'm I'm not gonna go to this show to network and get a gig. I'm gonna go to this show because I wanna hear their music and I care about that and I want them to succeed and not because it's gonna benefit me, but I'll just like go make friends and hang out and be part of the community that I wanna be a part of as a genuine human. And then three months down the line, going to that show maybe got me some work and that's great and that's like networking. But it was, you know, it's not like this real dirty word thing. It's sort of like a pet peeve of mine because I think a lot of creatives get in their own way, feeling like they need to do, you know, take a Dale Carnegie course and be some kind of like smooth operator, like $5,000 suit guy, like walking into the club and and like handing out your business card and like leaving business cards on like music stands saying like, hey, man, like hire me, bebop, boop, like everyone hates this guy so that it's not that you're literally you just you just show up you genuinely care about what other people are doing because people can like see through that it's not like fate caring about other artists or bands you don't care about but it's like we're all fans too so you show up you love it you be part of the community and for the sake of improving uplifting and just having the genuine like word i learned from you like compersion right wanting to just uplift everybody for their sake not for yours and then since it's all relationships sometimes when you're part of the community then the community you know if you give stuff to the community it might come back to you in unexpected ways but it's networking is not like a transactional thing or it won't work that's why i'll, I'll never go to like a slick music business conference where it's a bunch of people trying to hustle mm-hmm. for like gigs or whatever it, that's not how uh. it's gonna. it might happen for somebody it's not going to happen like that for me we're going to be hanging out i'm gonna be like wow that was you played really well i'm not gonna be like dude sick pedal bro like i loved i loved that reverse delay thing you did in the third chorus like nice like hyper metal lydian over the you know flat six chord like that like oh because then he'll know that i know music theory and then he'll hire me like no like buy him a beer and ask him how his day was like i don't know i again the this comes naturally to like social people. So, this is like redundant for like the more socially uh, capable. But, like, like, I'm a they've all been at the dirt like, I need to go network. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm just the like, guy, no, Midwestern. I don't want to impose, you know. <laughs> no, you
0: nailed it. I mean, I think this again, language, this word networking, networking events, all the baggage that comes with it. Really detracts from the simplicity of just talking to someone. You know, like I remember we were talking at one point. Oh, you play music. Oh, these are the kinds of things that you're trying to do. I learned that because I care about you as a human. I find that out. I you didn't impose that information on me. I wanted to learn. (laughs) You wanted to learn, and then it was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, Jared has this project he's working on and needs a musician. It's like. I think you'd be a great person because you expressed interest in x y and z and it's like of course i want people to win if i like them i want them to win i don't yeah. really it's not that i don't want people i don't know to not win i just like you're right I don't i don't want to deal with people that i don't know who are like only looking to me to help them win like yeah nothing yeah. else you know then you're just sort of an object in their uh in their subjective life and so you know i look to situations where it's like I view you as your complete interesting unique being there's so much to be discovered just I mean people are witnessing this in this conversation but all the other conversations we've had there's such depth to the individual that if they're willing to learn about my depth I'm always willing to learn about someone else's and through that yeah of course I want you to win the second there's an opportunity that is I think suited for you based on what I know, what we've talked about and what, you know, I I could see a stretch goal even for you, you know, whatever, like I want you to have that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was on Art Club the other day, it was like, he was talking about his illustration, how he wants to work with, you know, Twitch streamers. And I was like, dude, my stepbrother represents a dozen or more Twitch streamers, like, like huge, like top streamers, right? It's like, I literally, if I knew this information, that would be done already. And then the other part is obviously when you get to know someone, some people are just talking to you to, to get an opportunity, but the preparedness yeah. isn't there. And so what I'm looking for when I'm beating people is, are they prepared? You know, I remember talking to uh, my buddy JJ and it was like, if I give you an Ariana Grande record tonight, would you be able to mix it? Like, are your files structured in order? Is your emails professional? Do you have an assistant to support you? Like, are you really ready to do that thing? And that, you know, because that's the, I could give you the opportunity. I can actually, but let's say I could. If that opportunity, you know, presented itself, are you prepared? That's the other thing. And I think a lot of people who network are not prepared. They're just yeah. seeking opportunity and they're not seeking to to know the person that they're yeah. getting that opportunity from. And so- That's why I've always struggled with it. I don't work well. My voice is very low and and soft and in, you know, situations where it's not a very quiet room that I sound loud in. It's not, it doesn't like uh, project far. So in a loud bar-like setting where everyone's transactionally trying to meet each other, I'm like, that's not the best environment for me to win or help other people win. So I've always avoided it. But I think it's something that when I started status was like, I literally cannot avoid this. It's like, if I want this to exist, I can't avoid this. And so Mm -hmm. getting comfortable with it and recontextualizing it was key. And if nothing else, if these people are at my funeral and were like, I did something to better their lives Mm -hmm. and made them uh, see the world differently or help them in their efforts or mentally just help them along at a hard time, like that to me, at the end of the end is what matters, right? So if you're only like, oh, he was like really great, like he, I gave him a project one time and never heard from him again. Like, I don't want anyone to say that. Yeah. I don't yeah, want yeah. them to not show up because they didn't even know that I died because they had no idea who the fuck I really was. You know? Right. And right. It's just like, what is the point of it, really? What is that? What is that sort of behavior teaching any? Um, so, I think about that sorry for going a little on the dark side there but it, it's true
1: no that's true great uh, yeah i mean and I, I mean i i read a lot of stoicism so the the meditating it's... on either death or the worst is sort of part of the gig but i wanted to go off on something you, you were talking about which is like wanting other people to win which i think is so important not just like yeah in, in the networking you know situation it's that's one thing where it's like, okay, you're meeting somebody. you want to add value to them, and then maybe they'll add value to you, but that's not it. That's not the whole story, right? And also, in but in collaboration, it's you're not trying to like win the collaboration. You're trying to bring someone else's vision to life in dialogue with, you know, maybe what you might have to offer. But at the same time, something I like very much wanted to address publicly is the thing that happens when people have this beautiful friendships, um, beautiful working relationship. And then something happens where like one or a few of them become like very successful. And like, some people get left behind. And people can get really resentful about that. And you know, I mean, sometimes people do it in like, you know, they really do people dirty. And so I'm not going to say every situation is like this. uh, Because I know some people get do get screwed over like it is a little cutthroat. But for the most part, like if I am like part of a project that then I'm no longer a part of and it does better without me and I value those people as humans, I'm so happy for them. Like I just want I want my friends to win with or without me because the basis of what we've like built together musically or otherwise is based on the idea that I care about them. I want to help make their vision come to life. And that has a life of its own that I don't necessarily, I have like a stake in it. I put sweat equity into it in a sense. I have some sort of ownership over the creative process, but I don't own their vision. They don't owe me anything. I'm not mm. entitled to them bringing me along. I like to a certain extent, like I'm okay being like, Moses going up seeing the promised land and like not going there myself (laughs) as long as I can see my people get there you know like if oh like there's milk and honey out there for y'all and I like like yeah go go get that stuff and and maybe I, I don't know what may I actually I know why I think this way it's from a very early age like my dad was in the music business he was a drummer and you would always say like it's because it is a rough and tumble business, You just like, don't feel entitled to anything like music doesn't owe you anything. And I really I feel that way. And so uh th- there have been a number of, of things that I've been a part of that have, you know, gotten kind of popular and either like the vision changed, and they didn't need me anymore, people moved and or they just wanted to work with different people because that served their vision. And like, every time, at those junctures. I'm like, hell yeah, because that's what's next for you on your vision. Like I'm in this for life, too. And my path is going to be different. And the fact that our paths like converged for a little bit, um, and we are able to make something like really like beautiful and sublime is great. And now your path is going this way, mine's going this way. And as long as I would, every single time rather have the the love and friendship and like familial connection that comes from making that kind of work together. I'd rather have that last the rest of my life than feeling like, Oh, like, every time that you need, like drums, you better call me or I'm gonna be mad that you chose this person with like a different feel who's like slightly more available or like, (laughs) Oh, it's because they don't love me anymore. Like, I understand uh, the people getting defensive about that. But I'm just very, very committed to the idea of loving people, and loving the craft and loving music. And I'm just I'm a lifer. And so I'm gonna do this no matter what. And bands will come and go collaborations will like begin and end in the same way that romantic relationships do. And I'm just grateful for whatever parentheses were around that like working life that we had together. And I I want to continue to grow like a personal relationship beyond that instead of burning the personal relationship because I felt like I was entitled you know I I, I don't want to have like the the Pete Best attitude you know like would they would they have gotten as popular without Ringo like no they wouldn't have and they they needed to do that they could have told him in person they probably shouldn't have sent like a letter you know I I anyway that's a that's like another little personal thing of mine where it just I have so much gratitude for the relationships I've built. And I care so much about the craft and the art and the relationships surrounding music. um. And it's so sacred to me that I just I want everyone I've ever worked with who I care about to succeed, like with or without me. And I like I'll I'll figure out I'll figure out my own way, you know, and that's totally fine if we're only share the path for a season of life, as you were saying.
0: Way to tie it, way to tie it around. I think a lot of this has to do with this idea of people looking for like their ticket out, you know, like, oh, I'm like, this is the project that's going to get me like $10 million and then I'm out and then I don't need to do this shit anymore. And it's like, there's a lot of people I know that that is sort of the perspective. And when you're carrying that perspective, it also comes with this idea of like, wait, you even want to do this thing in general or is it just a means to an end because you know you're not really going to enjoy it and if you don't get that end that you're looking for you're really not going to enjoy it
1: it's so results oriented and i've yeah. never i've never been outcome oriented it's i've always been process oriented i love the craft i love to do it i love to wake up every day and have my life revolve around getting better at what i do and doing it I, another one of i, I a lot of If I have any like nuggets of wisdom, I'm just parroting things that my dad told me in the car when I was like 12. He must have known I was going to go into this crazy business because he gave me like a lot of really good advice about how to navigate it. But he would always just say like trust the process, love the process. It was always like, yeah, the gigs were cool, but it was practicing and working on it. And the lunch break between the sessions that was like the good part or you know it just it was all this stuff around it that wasn't the getting your bag thing I mean you have to make a living and so like that is part of it but if, if you want to make a bunch of money you know being a freelance creative is not your easiest ticket to do that so if you're going to choose to especially music especially as like a player especially in what many people consider to be like flyover territory, even though it's not like this is a really important music city and I'll, I'll defend the Twin Cities forever. I'm doing this because I love it. So every day I'm just going to love what I'm doing. I'm, it's, I'm not going to wait to love what I'm doing until oh I, you know, I have a, a studio in LA and I, I get the Ariana track. That'd be great for what that is. And that'd be a milestone in a lot of ways. But the thing I would love about that isn't the accolade or the release date. It'd be, oh, I wonder what the process is like with someone working at that high level with that much of a machine like behind her. I bet that we could go really deep and make something really great with someone who's uh, five times in a generation talent or something like that would be why you'd want to go up. And my dad always said that too. It was like the working your way up thing isn't about like success in the traditional sense. It's just like, if you get better and you get better gigs, then you work with better people. And then the music usually gets better. And so if you to get to that highest level in the business sense allows you to then ascend musically to where like, oh, damn, like, I'm playing with like, Aaron Sterling and Sean Hurley, like, this is the best rhythm section in the world. And so like, yeah, I'm like, whatever. I'm at East West Studios doing this big session. But it's not about that. It's like, okay, cool. Like, I'm gonna have a good day because I'm doing it with the best in the world. So I, mm. I, I I've always had a, a process oriented view of success. And then those milestones, it's never been Oh, I mean, it was cool to play First Ave main room, like sold out. But that was never as cool as the first time playing with musicians I grew up going to see. And then like, I got the call to like play with them and then feeling what it was like to sit in a groove with, you know, your favorite drummer or something looking at our
0: topics, looking at kind of where to take this, we, we're we actually we're tapping into subjects that we haven't spoken about on this series. And I'm happy we did. I, I abandoned the agenda completely to just explore the threads that we add. So because I know there's there's a wealth of insight there on that bookshelf and in your brain. So
1: Well, I just run my mouth. I don't know if there's insight, but I have a lot of shit to say.
0: Yeah, a lot of opinion, a lot of insight, a lot of learning. I'm curious about identity. Let's talk about identity. You are a musician, some would say. Some would say you're a drummer or a guitar player or whatever, Mm -hmm. a songwriter. Um, What has your relationship with these identities been? like? How has it helped? How has it hurt your creative process?
1: I have always looked up to and identified with musicians I have always prided myself on being a certain kind of musician that I saw modeled from an early age growing up mm-hmm. around these session players. I always wanted to be that kind of musician, like not just. And, and these were categories I set up for myself um, mm-hmm. and they've limited me. And I, I think I've broken out of them now. But for much of my life, I was thinking, OK, yeah, I love bands. I love rock and roll. Like but at the end of the day, like I want to be the like skilled, like trained like studio ace guy who can just read anything and has like unlimited chops and is like can play jazz really well but isn't like just a jazz guy like i wanted to be able to do everything and then i still wrote songs and did original music but i it always bothered me i didn't want to just be an artist i felt like that was something i loved to do but my identity was more wrapped up in being this other kind of musician and i don't think i looked down on being an artist as like a lesser form of of like musician but I definitely liked the idea of being associated with like the extremely like capable kind of you know musician who could do anything who didn't just have one point of view that was really amazing like a guy in a band who is the only guy who could be in that band who plays like this certain way and only that way and indispensable. I I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be Steve Lugather and Tim Pierce and and all these other musicians. And so I think that that separation of like artists and craftsmen was really hard and fast in how I defined myself as a musician. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to spend a lot of my life since college breaking down those boundaries, being more creative within the freelance sphere. And also being more, uh, you know, bringing my skills more into the creative sphere as well. And I think also, to, to add to that, it was always very important to me to make a living only playing music. And I don't know why that is. Because, like, you know, Einstein was a patent clerk, and Bukowski was a postman and like it, all of, they're not any lesser artists for having day jobs. And it, I think for a lot of people, that is a really like liberating thing to have this and then you come home and you work on your craft and it keeps it pure and you don't have to uh, take work you don't want to like keep food on the table but for me being good enough and you know in demand enough to have my own place and be able to make a living just playing was really important to my self-identity which is why like covid was kind of hard because it was like well I can't do that anymore kind of who am I Then I realized that I'm undifferentiated non dual consciousness. And then I needed to separate myself from my (laughs) egoic ignorance. I'm saying that glibly so that I don't actually like talk for 45 minutes about my spiritual awakening. But no, I I separated myself from some of those hard and fast categories. And it made me better at all of them. And I, I was too wrapped up into this sort of you know, post capitalist view of the artist as someone who makes their living making art, which meant more to me than it probably should have. I don't know if how negatively it affected my work. But I always took pride in being on the gig and somebody be like, Yeah, so like, do you have to do anything else? Like, no, I'm, I am no, I just play. Oh, like, do you teach or anything? I'm like, no, I don't have to teach. I took more pride in that conversation than I probably should have. And it it took a lot of self reflection to analyze why. And I think that there there was uh, some ego I needed to overcome in that because it's what I always aspired to. That was my biggest goal was just always make a living doing this for the rest of my life. And so when I did it, while I'm usually very self deprecating, and have like a pretty I I have a sense of, like, my worth and my my skill and my talent. I'm not needlessly self-deprecating, but I'm not, like, a big, like, crazy ego guitar player. Like, ooh, look what I can do, whatever. I'm not that kind of person. But I, I did take too much pride in being a musician in this sense that it was, like, a job descriptor and not just as a, like, person who makes music, someone who engages in the sphere of the disciplines of the muses. You know, nothing about the Greek etymology of that has anything to do with whether or not you make money doing it. In the same way that, you know, there's all these philosophy professors who like, they're not philosophers. They're professors who like teach philosophy and like philosophy like has never really been a profession. I mean, sometimes, you know, like Aristotle got hired to teach Alexander the Great stuff you know whatever but like they were just people with nothing else to do who would you know sit under the stoa and like talk and so I think I got too wrapped up in that category of being someone who makes their living doing it in a way that maybe damaged my relationship to the art and that's something that caused me to burn out and live and die with the success of certain projects or how much money was coming in or caring more about just stupid like clout stuff. And I was never that bad about it. I think I have a pretty good head on my shoulders as far as like not getting too big headed. But my self definition is definitely more one who creates music for and with other people with a more outward orientation and a little less of a self aggrandizing notion of what it means to be a musician. I think that it's a negotiation between people. And it's a beautiful, like humanistic, like art form. And so for me, it's become about other people and less about me or whether or not I make a living at it. If we end up in lockdown again, and I have to take like some freelance writing gig or whatever, I'm not any less of a musician. And I don't think I would have been able to handle that blow to my ego five years ago. So yeah, that was, that's real. I don't think I've ever said that in public. Well, I appreciate that vulnerability there. I think
0: it's, it's so true. And the, the connection to burnout was an interesting topic raised. You know, how this fixation on identity sometimes leads to an attachment to the highs and lows of the success, the wins. The attachment to the wins and losses is a direct attachment to your self-esteem because your self esteem is directly connected to your identity. And Mm -hmm. so it's this potential doom loop, unless you're crazy successful and then you become an arrogant asshole. (laughs) But like- Right, right, right. Yeah, so, but it's like either one, like if you're you're kind of stuck in that loop, which I've been, you're saying you've been, it's like my identity, my self esteem, and the success of the work are all in this, Mm this loop together. And so as long as I'm up, I'm the best musician, I'm the best oh, yeah. person, mm-hmm. and life's great, the world is great, I like people, uh, the opposite of that is I'm the worst musician, I hate people, Life's yeah. terrible, whatever, and if you're in that low for too long, and, or you're just continuing to kind of lift yourself back up every time, that's going to burn a lot of energy and then lead to burnout, so I think it's an interesting sort of look at uh, how those
1: things are connected. And you, you raised a great point about, uh, identity and burnout. And I would live and die with how well I felt my recording projects were going. The freelance stuff would be like, oh, I'd show up. I would, you know, fuck up sometimes. And I, you know, I would take it hard for like a night and then be okay. because like, okay, people mess up all the time. Like people make mistakes, just learn from it and grow. Um, But with my own stuff, especially in college or whatever, I would would spend 10 minutes doing a vocal and then the next three months listening to it over and over again, trying to pitch correct it, trying to do all this stuff and being like, oh, I'm a terrible singer and then internalize it. It would cause like physical like tension and like distress and anxiety and and like Mm. sort of depressive rumination over my worth, because when it's your voice, it's like your voice is who you are and that's so tied in with your identity. And it's like, that's not something you can just change by practicing. You can't just buy new vocal cords, but you can buy a new guitar. So it was like, that was really, that was really tough for me. And I had to kind of get over that. The ego trap, not in the sense of I had an inflated ego, but just the thinking too much about myself in a negative way. Mm -hmm. That is its own type of um, selfishness. Like people who are very obsessed with how Like how like tortured of an artist they are can be kind of that self flagellation can be a little indulgent and unproductive in some ways. And I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not making a claim about mental illness in generally, um, because that can be really hard cycle to get out of that. I can't just glibly talk about in that way. But I think sometimes artists get so hyper-focused on, and live and die with their projects, which is more my point. Um, and I think that trying to separate the ego from the work enough to where you can thrive as a human being and be okay with the fact that you didn't give your best work that day is somewhere we need to get to. But it's so hard when you're like 19 and you care so much about being so like good. If your identity is wrapped up with being this thing and you're not living up to it, then it's not just oh, I'll I'll try the vocal again tomorrow. It's like, it's self negation. And that's difficult. Self loathing when you could just do another take. Sounds like a really easy trap to get out of, but has actually probably been my biggest struggle as an artist Mm. over time. And now I think I've come to this place where and partially because of meditation where I have some separation from my thoughts and feelings where it's like, okay, wait, I'm feeling this way. Step away from the canvas. Let's just come back at it tomorrow and just mm-hmm. do it better. Don't worry about it. I can do it as many times as I want. like it's no one's gonna come in, and no one needs to hear this but me. um, and I'll just do it better. and if I don't do it better, then n- no one will hear it ever. and that's fine, and I still have value as like a human being, um you know, and I can hug my mom and and you know kiss my girlfriend and whatever. so like that you know, I can go for a walk. I'm. I exist as a human being that has value outside of either my career designation or, um, the sense of my self worth, uh, that's tied with any sort of notion of art making. Cause at the end of the day, it's just music and that's okay. It's a good thing. I did this cause I love it. And I also love myself and I cannot like the thing I did that day and still love music and still love myself which while that seems like a truism, and like a platitude and like super obvious, when you're in it, in it, that's almost impossible to like, get to that place. Um So yeah, that was that was a tricky one to navigate over time. And that still happens. But I, I've kind of I have some strategies. And I'm a, a little better than I once was about that.
0: Okay, yes, to all of that. Um I completely, completely resonate with everything you just said, I think, I've also had to I mean, I I completely left my job, uh, nine to five fucking corporate lifestyle from that burnout, really very deeply related to that identity and uh, saying, Is that even the identity I want to have? What does it mean to reframe it and be in control of uh, my destiny without having sort of this fixed identity of self? Uh, What is that healthy balance? These are questions I've been asking myself over the last several years. And it had me thinking as you're saying it, like, someone that's coming into this day one, month three or whatever, like, is it possible? And I just want to brainstorm here. I don't want an answer, uh, just ideas. Like, is it possible for a young person to enter into this without, like, is, what's the other motivation? What's the other motivating force for someone uh, to say,
1: I'm going to just get good at music because I like it? probably just loving it like it it, is as long as the north star is love and like connection to other people and like you know humanity and and boundaries and i think there's just there's so much to it probably starting therapy at a younger age is like really (laughs) important like that's like not i mean that's not even a joke like for real like that is no i'm with you that would have saved me a lot of uh well i mean i was in therapy but you know I, when I was 19, I was smarter than every therapist, you know. You know, oh, I, I, I like you can't help me or some stupid <laughs> bullshit like that. So, um, uh, yeah. So I think really just having a good like the system and like doing it for the right reasons, but like it's a journey. Like we're all going to go astray on that. Like yes. it's, it's, it's hard because if you care, if you love it that much, it's hard not to make it your whole world. Right. And, it, and it's, it can be beautiful. But...
0: And I think it can be your own world without it being the only thing you are. Yeah. Or thinking that it's the only thing you are. Because mm-hmm. obviously, naturally, it isn't, cannot be the only thing you are. It's not even a thing. It's just a label. But like, mm-hmm. feeling like that, there's nothing else that I can contribute but like strumming on this guitar. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. to think, to limit yourself down to that is, it seems, you know, saying it right now, like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, how would anyone ever think that? But as soon as uh, someone tells you you strum on that guitar really well, it it, it can happen pretty quick. Yeah, that, it's a heavy topic. And it's sort of, I think, what leads to burnout later. And people are like, well, how the hell did that happen? All I've been doing is the thing that I'm supposed to do. You know, like, this is my calling, or whatever it may have been, like, all, I'm amazing at music, or I'm amazing at illustrating. How come I'm burnt out? Why don't I want to illustrate anymore? Why don't I want to design anymore? I remember this moment of being like, I don't think I want to design anymore. But I don't actually think that that's true. I just feel like I don't. You know, why is that happening? You yeah. wouldn't get into that on my interviews. I might say up too much time, but it's like, Burnout's real and it's oh yeah and it's sneaky and it sometimes looks like the verge of success or something like that so
1: yeah and I, I I've had it hard uh, many times and and it's always when everything is going right and yeah at 2020 was big for me reframing those things and focusing on other people and just my love of the craft and just love in general and being really grateful and mindful of everything not feeling like oh I have to do this thing it's like oh I like get to do this thing like gratitude being gratitude forward and has just changed my whole life like I used to be in, in the kind of dark place that I was describing like for a lot of years off and on of my career when I was doing really well and for the first time even when things get just as hectic as they were then I feel more grounded and more balanced and I feel like I really spent the time to develop the tools to handle that and just realize that I'm a person and and not be so hard on myself and just use everything as an opportunity to learn and grow and just feel grateful that I get to do this at all with the people that I think are amazing and and you know I'm that I'm really happy to be around so I did go really dark for a second but with the sort of caveat that through like a lot of like self work, and therapy and, and reading and you know, whatever meditation, and yoga and culture, like I've I tried everything like I'm a seeker, I found the combination of things that keeps me grounded and ready to do the work. So I feel the best I've ever felt in my life on a day to day basis. And I'm showing up for the work with an outward orientation that is not about me, like with an egolessness that I've never had before and I'm playing better. My relationships are getting deeper. I'm getting, you know, more opportunities, which is not why I'm doing those things. So I, I feel like I hit that really head on when it was at its worst, kind of during the, the depth of, uh, the COVID summer and the like revolution here in Minneapolis. And I, uh, kind of came came out the other end feeling like different in, in that way where you kind of go through, you know, the Joseph Campbell like hero's journey, not that I'm a hero, but like I went through a bunch of shit, and I like came back different. And I feel really grateful for that. And it, it's still like hard as hell. I think everyone needs to find it doesn't have to be meditation and Wim Hof breathing or whatever, but whatever grounds somebody and, and makes them able to do that work like coming from a place of love and gratitude and connection and and community consistently where they feel recharged every day instead of drained when they wake up like and that's it's a journey of trial and error and searching but like if people can find that right cocktail of things to keep them in that place as much as you can that's huge for like longevity and and something Mm -hmm. as demanding as this um, psychically and emotionally and physically and financially and everything else. Otherwise you won't make it. It'll eat you alive, but it's That's, good. you can do it, you can do it though. No. <laughs> keep going. No, dude. no, I keep going that, for real. Don't quit. Don't quit.
0: Don't quit. I think this is an excellent place to conclude. Thank you for sharing everything you have shared this entire time. I think it's, I always get so much value from talking to you. Uh, whether it's recapping, um, our last few weeks or the episodes or planning for the future, um, there's so much openness and knowledge and excitement about creative work inside of you and outside of you, around you, uh, that you create, um, and it's been an absolute pleasure working with you so far. And I'm actually excited now because now we're gonna be working together even more. Uh, in that like you'll be more visible people will get to see more of you and that's why i wanted to end the interview series with you because i want them to to know you now because they're going to be seeing a lot more of you and um have some context to the way you're approaching things um the same way i have i've gained that context over the past few weeks so dude thank you for reaching out even though you were uh Afraid to, or not <laughs> doing it, uh, because it really—I'm—I got the gift at at the end of the day from from you reaching out. So well, thank you, appreciate it. I'm psyched to to continue writing this book, and thanks so much.